Here's a quote for you. Everything you think you know about addiction is wrong. That's a quote often attributed to Johann Hari. Actually, Stanton Peel coined the expression, one he still uses, fittingly, today. Welcome to the Social Exchange Podcast. My name is Zach Rhodes, and this is episode number 78. In this interview, Dr. Stanton Peel discusses his memoir, A Scientific Life on the Edge, My Lonely Quest to Change How We See Addiction. More importantly, Peel recounts his life story, both in this interview and in his memoir, beginning with his general theory of addiction that he put forth in his 1975 book, Love and Addiction, followed by a discussion of his career as an outsider in mainstream addiction psychology, an outsider whose knowledge, views, and contributions can never be ignored. Stanton goes on to explain how he managed to maintain an influential career in psychology and remain focused on his life purpose, despite never being affiliated with institutions or organizations in his life. Finally, he explains to me how and why he continues to pursue meaning, both in life and in the addiction field. Of course, I'm biased in Stanton Peel's favor. Actually, I wrote a testimonial about him, which was published in the memoir. Here's what I said. I'll read it, and then I'll take you right into this episode. Quote, I was not invited to participate in the addiction field. I forced my way into the conversation. Yet somehow I've made friends along the way, Stanton Peel being my first. I sought out Stanton's point of view when I discovered he was the only person in the addiction field making sense regarding the relationship between trauma and addiction. From that point forward, Stanton has engaged me deeply about addiction, about society, about myself, what it means to live my most meaningful and purposeful life. For my part, I'm a unique mix of disagreeable, as per my disagreement with the dominant brain disease addiction narrative, and persuasive and friendly, as per my large network of family, friends, and fellow community members who know and respect me. This bodes well for me in the two domains that comprise my life's work, my intellectual pursuits and my work in a helping profession. Unfortunately, I was once sold a story about my own best characteristics, that they were deficits that needed to be tempered. And this narrative became self-fulfilling for a time in my life. Stanton Peel has helped me turn this story on its head. Now I recognize myself as a person with strengths and potential, as opposed to a person whose challenges usurp any hope of being successful. He never told me this directly. Instead, he mentored me on a journey of self-discovery through a meaningful partnership that involved helping people clinically and debunking mythology through writing. He taught me to work with him in tandem, balancing our respective strengths and blind spots. This is Stanton's MO. He would never tell people how they ought to view themselves, only that they might reconsider putting any ceiling on their own potential to live a great life. This is a level of self-awareness that Stanton has helped me achieve without changing anything about my authentic self. I see Stanton as the most honest intellectual I've ever known. I'm forever grateful that he's my friend, colleague, and mentor. End quote. I hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Stanton Peel. Today I'm here with my mentor, my friend, and now a colleague, and a person who I believe is the most influential person in the addiction field. Indeed, he laid the groundwork for a concept of addiction that withstands time, and which prominent writers and thinkers and psychologists have slowly but surely been adopting, however slowly. He's the author of 14 books, including his seminal 1975 book, Love and Addiction, which he co-authored with Archie Brodsky. He also wrote The Diseasing of America, The Meaning of Addiction, Seven Tools to Beat Addiction, among other influential works, some of which he'll probably mention. 
His most recent book until now was one that I had the great honor to co-author called Outgrowing Addiction. And his current book is a memoir called A Scientific Life on the Edge, My Lonely Quest to Change How We See Addiction. My guest is Dr. Stanton Peel. Stanton, thank you so much for joining me today. This is really a pleasure. We speak every week on a podcast and more often than that in our work, but this is sort of a different kind of an interview. I'm really glad to be doing this and to be discussing your life's work with you. Well, it's my pleasure and my life's work is uh, pretty lifelong. As you mentioned, it started with Love and Addiction in 1975 and even earlier, obviously, we began writing Love and Addiction in 1971 and now it's 2021. I, I think it's a half century. So uh, I'm glad to be celebrating the half century with you, Zach. Nobody I'd rather do it with. You haven't let up in a half century. In my memoir, I had some periods where I <clears throat> diverted my attention. I have three children, all of whom went to college. I had to make a living. And so my memoir is sort of about how it's in three parts or four actually. The first part is how I came to be who I am and how I came to see addiction the way I did. The second part is sort of the journey, like, well, I never was really supported for my addiction work, so how did I exactly get through life? Which is a, a task of some accomplishment and some duress. And then the third part is, you know, where do my ideas stand now? And where do I fit in the addiction field now, as you were describing a bit? And the last brief part is, where do we go from here? You know, I'm not done, the century's not done, and addiction's not done. I've thought about how I want to do this. Uh, let me get meta on you for a second. I had a lot of notes written out. So I'm reading your memoir, and as I was reading it, making notes, jotting down names, events, um, I think that might make it too contrived. And so I, I junked that. I think that I know you well enough and I understand your work well enough. And I also don't want to give an interview that makes it so, it's what I've noticed on podcasts. People give interviews about your book and I listen to those. And then I think, oh, now I don't need to read the book. So I want to make sure that people at least understand, we'll go through some depth maybe, but I want to make sure that people understand that there's a lot in those pages that are worth reading. So let's get a start on that for people who don't know you. Who are you and what do you do and what are you known for? Well, my name is Stanton Peel. Um, I'm a brand in the addiction field. Uh, early on in the introduction, I mentioned that a man who won the Nobel Prize for Rational Models of Addiction refers to my work, Becker, um, Gary Becker. And um, I mentioned that one of the most prominent names in the field, Bill White, historian of alcoholism, says everybody in the field knows who I am. Um, and that sometimes my personality outstrips the content and the contributions I've made, but Bill White nicely sets out what it is I've done. I'm a person who gave a whole new slant on addiction. Um, people call it... Uh, process addiction, but that's not how I think about it. I showed that addiction is not a function of drug taking. Addiction is a larger class of experience that includes other powerful experiences other than drugs, love, sex, gambling, food. Um, I contested the total dominance. Now it's the brain theory model of addiction, but then it was, and still is, the 12-step AA model 
and presented alternative ways of, and, and combated that model and presented alternative ways of dealing with and thinking about addiction. And cut to the present, there's a general sensation that things aren't going well with addiction. I mean, everybody knows about the continuing record numbers of drug deaths. And so there's been a movement of people, including all of whom you know, Mark Lewis, Carl Hart, Johan Hari, Maya Solovitz, who've begun to write bestsellers contesting the disease model of addiction, all of them either, either um, explicitly or implicitly make contact with me and my work. But my memoir's goals are to one, reiterate that I've been doing this for 50 years, which some Maya in particular mentioned, and which people are more or less conscious of, but at the same time to show that the basic underlying model of addiction, the way I think about addiction, still hasn't been fully explicated anywhere and still needs to be. And there's still a task ahead for me and with your help to do, and I'm still embarked on that task. So you're credited with formulating this idea of process addiction and you would say, well, it's okay. So process addiction means people, not just drugs are addictive, some processes are addictive. You say, no, I'm a little bit beyond that. Addiction is the process. Yes, addiction cannot be defined. When I started out, addiction was heroin. And that's been gradually expanded more or less over the decades to include cocaine, painkillers, of course, uh, even marijuana. And people become more conscious of the bridge between alcohol and narcotics. Um, and that's been a constantly expanding net, which I, and cigarettes, of course, all of which I not only foreshadowed, but explicitly mentioned in the 1970s. But at a fundamental level, there cannot be a list of things that are addictive and things that are not addictive. Addiction is itself a process of engagement with an overwhelming activity or involvement or activity that has a detrimental effect on a person's life that they feel they cannot function without. And in that sense, it's, it's both ubiquitous, but that doesn't mean that everything's dangerous. It means, for example, as Carl Hart would say, narcotics are less dangerous, painkillers are less dangerous than we make, and drugs than we make them out to be. And what we need to focus on is not the thing, but the nature of the engagement the person has with the thing at a particular point in time. Addiction is uh, part of life and a naturally occurring part of life, you'd say. And it's and you've often mentioned that it's a sliding scale. And addiction, once realized, is just a, a dimension of that normal part of life gone awry. Fair to say? I mean... The worst meme that comes out of AA was uh, uh, addiction is like pregnancy. You either are or you're not. Right. Um, from love and addiction on, what I've said, well, it's a sliding scale. Some people display more or less addiction to the same thing within a short framework of time. For example, in the book, I talk about a friend of mine, maybe not continue, maybe he won't be after the memoir comes out. Um, named Howard, um, and uh, he um, is famous for going through uh, a therapeutic community 
But even before he kicked heroin, he would go to Fire Island. And while he was at Fire Island, he liked it so well, he would resort to maybe alcohol and cigarettes and he'd kick heroin. Even at the same time that when he was addicted to heroin, when he was sent to Rikers Island, he went through extreme withdrawal in his jail cell. So the same individual, even within a brief period of time, is capable of switching back and forth in the severity of their addiction. And that's certainly true over the scope of time. People are now recalling the importance of the Vietnam War. In Love and Addiction, Archie and I wrote about a man named Richard Wilbur, who was the Assistant Secretary of Defense in charge of health and environment, who said, everything I learned about heroin in medical school was wrong, that it's instantly and perpetually addicting because most of the men in Vietnam who became genuinely addicted by normal clinical practice, when they returned home, ceased to be addicted. And that includes the 50% of them who actually did use a narcotic stateside. Nonetheless, their whole reaction to heroin, the same drug, the same person changed in that changed environment. That's a very difficult thing for people to grasp, the, the sliding nature of addiction over time with the same person, over different environments, and certainly over the long course of events with growing maturity when most people, like Maya Salovitz, you know, kick heroin because, you know, sooner or later they grow up and fit into a comfortable role in life. Thanks for letting me interrupt the show just for a second while I tell you how if you enjoy the show, you can support us here at The Social Exchange. For one, if you're listening on our podcast app, will you take a minute to just rate and or review the podcast on said app, whether it's Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or anything else that allows for reviews. really helps us out. We find that after people start reviewing a little more often that our numbers go way up. A lot more people find us. Our searchability is enhanced. The second thing you can do, if it makes sense for you, is to donate to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thesocialexchange. Give kickbacks for people in different tiers, which you can check out, again, on our page, patreon.com slash thesocialexchange. Before I return you to the show, I just want to give a shout-out to all of our patrons, Pat Casey, Dora, Jeffrey Singer, Stephen Rabinowitz, Jesse Dunleavy, Andrew Tatarski, Dean Lemire, Christy McPherson, Nuncio De Martino, Susan Lennon, James Stacks, Chris L., Leah Nahufahu, Sherry Chandler, D.D. Stout, Christopher Hanlon, Andre Pompel, Carter Vermont, Rick Barnett, Ann Earl, Inigo, John, Layla Ferguson, Mary Kay Villaverde, Michelle, Nancy, Sean, Regina, Timmy Tucker, Christian, Tom Rhodes, my father, Linda Rhodes, my mother, Susan Matthew, my mother-in-law, Kathleen Cochran, Marjorie Israel, Diane T. Trevor. Thank you all so much for being a part of what we do. And if you'd like to add your name to that list, again, visit patreon.com slash the social exchange. Thanks again. Now back to the show. Talk about the ideas that you laid forth in love and addiction and specifically discussing destructive love-like relationships as addiction. That's really helped me understand the entire landscape because something like love or relationships those are things that we all have. We definitely will all have. And most, if not all of us, will have some level of destructiveness in those relationships, especially if one has ended. None of them come in for a completely smooth landing. 
and what you describe and our relationships to other people and relationships in general in that book, you know, I, I knew you, I understood the concept, but going back and reading that book helped me broaden and sharpen my understanding of what addiction is. Let me just say this before you, before you um, go ahead, you give it some me. detail. Like it's people as who know your work as well. And as recently as Jacob Sullum, when I interviewed him, mentioned he was trying to give you due credit. And so he said, you know, people like Stanton Peel even acknowledged that some addiction is good. Like you could be addicted to love. And I had to pull the brakes there and say, I don't think he's saying that any addiction is good. That sort of defies what he talks about addiction. There aren't good addictions and bad addictions because inherent in your definition and the concept is that whatever is addictive or addicting or whatever the addiction is, is causing some sort of impairment and distress in your life. So what you're saying in love and addiction isn't so much love and like healthy love relationships. That's not a signpost of addiction, but the sort of struggle that we, that we face in maintaining love relationships, understanding what it is that we want out of those relationships and the destruction that can happen on the other side of some love-like relationship that's been destructive, that's a good framework for addiction. And I hope you'll expand on that. Um, you know, um, thank you for correcting Jacob. Thank you for being more aware of my point of view. And Jacob has really tracked me forever. In the very, on the book cover of Love and Addiction on the hardback internal flap, it says love and addiction, the juxtaposition of the two seems strange, but uh, um, love, can be mistaken uh, for addiction or addiction can be mistaken for love, but ideally they're opposite of one another. And part of the goal of love and addiction was to create a positive model of human relationships, which is something uh, that without particularly referencing me, our good friend Johan Hari has done. Love is the opposite of addiction. Um, there, and as you point out, most of us have experienced destructive love entanglements. Love is a very confusing concept in our modern American culture. And uh, it's not joking to say that love relationships are addictive. Uh, love relationships are the largest source of murder and suicide. One joke I make is if love were a drug, it would be banned. I mean, uh, I refer to one case where identical twins were dating the same man. And in a fight, one of them's sisters stabbed the other in the heart, killing her. And she herself, her life is over. And what, did, what was that about? They were fighting over their love relationship with the man who was dating both of them. And it, and it resulted in murder and a life sentence. What the hell is that all about? And when we get to the interior of a person, and of course, when you talk to people about uh, in abusive relationships, the word that most often comes up, it's let's say it's a woman, but it's men too. Why do you put up with this? Mm. The answer they always give is love. So that love is a very fluid kind of a concept. And in its most destructive form, where you deny everything about yourself and you turn yourself over to another human being, no matter what consequences there are for your life, and you shut out the rest of your existence, is an addiction. And I wanted to, I, I mean, love and addiction was written with a little bit of a 60s mentality. I wanted to explicate what love was about. At the same time, that I was trying to define addiction. That, that's a big cup of tea. 
And there are subsequent bestsellers written, um, Women Who Love Too Much. Um, then, of course, the biggest bestseller is Codependent No More, um, which kind of took one or another aspect of, of love and addiction. But love and addiction, at the same time that it was talking about relationships, laid out a basic model of addiction. And my publisher at the time, a woman with a small publishing house in New York named Tatlinger, was in despair. Why do I want to talk about addiction and drugs and Vietnam wants a bestseller about a, a thing about relationships. But in fact, love as an interpersonal relationship as being a, destructively addictive is in a way uh, the easiest and best way to illustrate the phenomenon. As you say, virtually every human being has gone through a phase in their life. It's they make rock and roll songs about it, where they've been involved in destructive relationships. It's an experience. It's a way of people relate to addiction to show that it's a fundamental human process where they can say, and where you can say to them, were you ever in a relationship that you knew was going in a bad way, where you knew this wasn't good for you, and yet you couldn't separate yourself from it? And like uh, the Tar Baby and in, uh, in the Walt Disney film, that you keep digging yourself digger and dig deeper into that mm. morass. Everybody understands what addiction's about, where you're digging your own hole deeper. And most of us have gotten beyond that more or less. Some people into totally mature love relationships, some people not as much as that. And it's a way of interior, internalizing the concept of addiction as a fundamental human process in a way that a mere, most everybody can relate to. There's a way in which I think about your understanding that love addiction is, by all metrics, the worst addiction that there is. It's certainly the most deadly and it's the most, um, well, it's the worst. I had um, trouble with heroin for years of my life, as you know, and as I think back on that, I remember feeling great. You know, I did it and there were certain things about me that I feel like were improved. And I cared about that. I cared that it made me a, a calmer person, a less neurotic person, that I could carry on conversations a little bit better. It, it seemed to improve my life. And I think that it's true that it did in that instance. At the same time, I started to rely on that to improve my existence and who I am rather than the things that make life worth living and improving on those things. And so I turned to it for both escape and enhancement. And I just really wore it out like a, like my baseball glove, you know, when I was at the end of high school and I, that I wouldn't let go of it really, like I, I couldn't let go of this thing, but there are other things that made life worth living for me. There's my wife, for instance, now my kid, but at the time my fam, my other family friends that seemed to be, diminishing as I came to over-rely on heroin, um, my work. So I don't want to be um, insensitive about this, but it was kind of easy for me to make the transition. If you asked me the year before I decided to stop doing, stop using heroin, that it would be easy. I would say that this, that's crazy. I can't even imagine doing it. But looking back a year later, you know, if, a year after I decided to transition to more important things in my life, I would say, it's kind of a smooth transition, you know, awkwardly smooth transition, surprisingly smooth. When it comes to love, I've been in destructive relationships before. And luckily for me, I guess it's that was in a much younger period of my life than now. But I could imagine, let's say, 
becoming married to a person, um, forming a family with them. So now you share things with them. You share a house, you share a life and having that same belief that this relationship is making me a better person. But not only that, the relationship is my everything. This relationship sort of defines my existence. And when that rug is pulled out from under you, if that ever happens, then you really are fighting against this dissonance that says, wait a minute, my existence is gone. That can't happen. So you're chasing it back with, with bad consequences or you're feeling in despair. And I, I think that that might be, and you can expand on that, but I, that is how I understand love to be the worst addiction. And it resonates with me. Well, you combine three, I mean, the sliding scale of addiction and the way that addiction fits in normal life. I think you gave three parts of it. Uh, we haven't talked to, we're talking about love a lot. Um, uh, and Carl Hart now is talking about the normal normalcy, at, which I always have of drug use. Yeah. And our life process program that we work together on, the disease model of addiction, among the worst things it does is to say that the addiction and the, oh, being wedded to a drug or alcohol is accidental. Oh, look, this just had this effect on me. But what you're saying is that you turn to it to fulfill specific needs that work for you. And it does have a positive function. It does provide benefits for you. As, and exactly as you describe it, it's when you turn your life over to that drug and say, well, that's my, my whole life is based on those things. I can't go to a party. I can't work. I can't exist without drugs or alcohol. That you've made a gradual transition to being in an addictive place. So... Addiction is not an accidental side effect of a drug. It's based on the benefits it provides, which become over, you overwhelmingly rely on both practically and existentially and cut out the other aspects of your life, which you describe. The second thing you describe is that there's a natural process. Most people, given a sufficiently facilitative environment, are going to outgrow it because they're going to see other options that they prefer. And the most common one is a family. Having children is the single most decisive factor in getting people to quit or cease being addicted to alcohol, cigarettes, drugs, and anything else that you can name, sex. Um, it's not perfectly sufficient for doing that, but it's the single thing that has the greatest impact on people doing that along with, as you also described, filling out your work role. Then the third most interesting thing you describe, which is pretty complex, is even in maturity, there can be more or less constraining relationships. I mean, there are people who come out of middle age and say, wait a second, this marriage has really prevented me from being fully functional. Obviously, that's something that comes up in many cases with women. That's a, a kind of a keynote thing. Was my marriage something that debilitated me and made mm. me not able to be who I ultimately should be? And there we get into defining as love and addiction. What is a love relationship? How it needs to expand you, how it needs not to be completely possessive uh, and constrictive and making you less able to do what you want to do. So addiction is as complex as all of life in terms of the, it being a benefit and a cost, in terms of it being a, a, something that changes over the course of your life. 
and as being something that is never fully uh, black and white. And at some points in your life, you can sit down and say, well, am I being more or less addictive in this involvement or this relationship? And can that be a template for me to try and improve this relationship? So that's not something that Jacob's going to focus on so much. He's a drug guy. He's not going to start talking about his own marriage and children and whether that it helped enhance his life to use love and addiction. That point of love and addiction, which was sort of what made it a semi-bestseller, and which is what's reflected in women who love too much and codependent no more, it, it's not referred to so much as my basic model and way of thinking about addiction as applied to drugs and alcohol. So the reason I wanted to spend so much time on the concept of love addiction, even though we're stuck in 1975 right now, is that you're still stuck in 1975 with the way that the world is, responds to that concept. I mean, the way that you just laid it out there, it's very commonsensical. I, I think that it's easy to kind of wrap your arms around and, and make sense of, but people have trouble wrapping their arms around the concept and then bringing it with them through their day-to-day -day life. As you mentioned, like Jacob Solomon is focused on drug policy. So he thinks of addiction in terms of drugs, what, the, what is the problem, what's not the problem. And Even I think most though he had me write a piece not that long ago about how DSM-5 did not include sex as an addiction, it rejected it. So he's conversant and aware of those ideas but it's not part of his working daily assemblage, yes. Right. I live in Vermont, and many of our local businesses have faced turmoil as a result of the pandemic over the past year or two years. While I don't record paid advertisements on this show, I'll be running a free ad each month for local Vermont businesses or nonprofits that I appreciate and which could benefit from your support. Today, I want to tell you about a nonprofit organization called Child Care Resource, or CCR. CCR helps families and child care centers in Vermont with any kind of resource you can think of. On the family side, for instance, if people can't afford child care, they'll work with them to figure out a way to access care on a budget. When my daughter was born and there were very few openings at child care centers, they helped us find quality daycares that had availability. They also work with families to access and sustain any kind of child care resource from funding to food, medical services, to consulting in schools or at home. For child care providers, they offer training opportunities, food programs, consultation, and a variety of other services. They're a lifesaver, and they're part of the reason why Vermont has top-tier child care while maintaining affordability, at least relative to the rest of the country. The landscape of early education is a tough one to navigate, but CCR makes doing so possible and reasonable for families and providers. Visit their website at childcareresource.org to learn more whether it means you're offering support to them, financially or otherwise, or whether you could use their support and services in your own life or career. Again, they are childcareresource.org. Thanks again. Now back to the show. So we'll have to get into the, the drug policy and all of that and then moving forward and, and how your career has gone on. Before we do, I just want to say that I've been really focused lately on, I don't know if focus is the right word, I've been really enjoying comedy lately. Uh, maybe the past year. I, I love the process of comedians. I don't think I'd be a great one, but I love the idea of, of what they're doing. They're looking at the world and a great comedian, I you know, lays out a reason why he or she or the whole audience, you know how we always do this thing? Isn't that stupid? And everyone kind of laughs. Oh yeah, I guess we do that thing. 
And then we, the, there's another laugh like, yeah, but we can kind of get beyond it. And here's the reason. And like, yeah, yeah, we can. So I've noticed uh, after sort of studying, I guess, um, comedians, there are people who are comedians, comedians, but who will never have a Netflix special. There are people who, if you ask any famous comedian now, you know, who were your inspirations? There are these people that you kind of have to look up and maybe they have a short Wikipedia entry about them and they've been doing stand-up forever, but never, never basked in the glory of anything. You see where I'm going with this. Does that remind you of you? Because it reminds me of you. How Keep talking. Well, I think that you're a person whose ideas are just there for the taking. They're so sensible. And as time moves on and there come to be these crossroads where addiction theory is not making sense and we need some new way forward, you've laid out the groundwork so well that people can take those ideas, but you're not a front page of the New York Times. You're not, you know, you don't have movies made about you. You're not even really, you're not doing daily lectures across the nation or something like that, but your ideas are there. And as William White said, people are aware of you. They can't ignore you, um, or especially they can't ignore your ideas. But some subset of the, the audience here for the social exchange who like people like to listen about social issues don't know who you are. And so I'm interested in that dynamic that you have with the work that you do. Well, I mean, Mark Lewis, I quote Mark Lewis. Uh, Mark Lewis is one of, oh, I have slightly by lateral contentious relationships with everybody in the field. And Mark Lewis's quote didn't come from a quote that he wrote for a book for mine. It was written an email where I said, hey, Mark, why don't you refer to me more? And he, he does refer to me sometimes. He said, Stanton, your work is out there in the miasma. Everybody knows it and it influences all of us. And that, you know, if you're a Buddhist, you can say, well, that should be satisfactory. You know, what mm. work do you do in life? Um, I, I, the quote at the top of the front of my book is by Maya Salovitz. Stanton Beale is a true pioneer of addiction research and theory. His ideas must be reckoned with by anyone who is serious about understanding addiction. She's done good by me. She's when in her bestseller, what's the name of her bestseller? Unbroken uh, Brain. She gives a whole section to me. So God bless her. And recently, I, you'll be talking to her. She's written a book about harm reduction, which I said was her best book. And it's totally unfiltered. She's yeah. lived harm reduction. It's not something she had to read about. It was a whole part of her life from the time she was addicted to drugs through the whole, her whole involvement in the field. It's as natural com coming from her as, as thinking about addiction is coming from me. And so I, I wrote that in a brief blurb and said, oh, do you mind if I use that? And I said, please do. I, if anything, it's un I couldn't say enough about it. And she said something like, well, coming from you, uh, I can't tell you how much this means to me. And I was shocked that at this point where she's world famous, she goes around giving lectures at medical schools um, that she should be able to, and I think it's in an area she gives lectures about addiction and what it is, that's not her strong suit. Her, her review her, of the history of harm reduction is an epic work that can never be ignored because she lived through all of it and nobody else is gonna live through all of it from here on in, uh, it, it's just a part of her life. So I have those accolades 
in some ways they should be satisfactory and sufficient for me, but it's my nature to want to put a landmark down in the history of the world. Uh, for me, I, I, this is something maybe uh, Ethan Adelman is going to interview me. Ethan Adelman would be somebody who says, well, you have a place in history and you do your thing and that takes up a certain point and you move the field along and you have to be satisfied with that. And that's a well-adjusted view of life. I don't have that view in life. Ever since I've been quite small, my whole goal, I've gone for the whole ball of wax. I want to be known for my contribution as fundamental for all time. And that's probably impossible. It's certainly highly unlikely and difficult. But it's me, and it's uh, what's motivated me through my entire life and will never cease motivating me. And, you know, I, there are a number of studies of people, uh, a man named Terman, who de developed the IQ test, studied geniuses on the IQ test. There's a study in Berkeley that studies people throughout their lives. And the single thing that most enables people, oddly enough, to live long and also to remain engaged and even satisfied with life is having some kind of a purpose like that. And I'm, I could be the picture postcard for that. I've got a motivating purpose from practically birth. I talk about first thinking about addiction when I was five and I'll never stop thinking about it. I'll never stop being completely motivated by it. So that's my gift and my bane of my existence. I think you just answered what my next question was going to be. I'll ask it anyway so that people know that you just answered it. As a reader, I get confused whether what you want is for people to recognize you, Stanton Peel, or recognize your ideas. Either one of those may perhaps is incomplete because, as Mark Lewis said, well, look, your ideas are going to be remembered forever. People can't ignore them and all the things that he said. But still, you laid out a concept that's never really been fully recognized and i think i believe and i know that that matters to you like for the world for the betterment of the entire world what would happen if somebody fully recognized if culture if society could fully recognize your concepts and at the same time you talk about ways that your ability to put your name on an article or your or get accolades from somebody were stymied somehow maybe because people your ideas put a bad taste in people's mouth or your personality put a bad taste in people's mouth so is it, is it fair to say that both of those things would be purposeful for you? You getting due recognition, but also your ideas getting full recognition in, in, in practice? I couldn't put it any, that's a question which is better than any answer I can give. I mean, that's the thing about me. I'm an incredible idealist. I can't bear for a second for people to have a misconceived idea of addiction. Um, Johan Hari and Ethan Adelman are both people who, who make the same quote. They quote Ronald Reagan and they both say, if somebody agrees with you 90% of the time, they're your ally. You should go along with them. And Johan does that as a way of dealing with the public. And Ethan used that as a way of crying, creating networks because he's trying to get certain things done, legalize marijuana. But I don't work that way. There's no 10% for me. If you have some fun, like, well, even with Jacob saying, well, love can be, uh, that's a positive addiction. He's misunderstanding some component of what I'm saying. And I would never thank you for not letting him get by with it. I would never let that happen. Um, and 
that's an impediment to being broadly accepted uh, in the way that Johan and Ethan would say, you know, you're not going to get elected president or anything close to it if you say, well, you agree with everything, but you're missing something essential. I need people to see the whole picture. And at the same time, I am self-aggrandizing. I want credit for those ideas. Um, uh, you point out, you say, well, people sometimes don't give you accolades. Uh, you know, uh, more, I mean, throughout the book, I talk about, people talk about love and addiction, love addiction, and they reference all kinds of crazy places where they first saw that. Some, uh, uh, one article referenced uh, uh, an article in Scientific American in 2004. How they missed the fact that I emanated that idea uh, is just beyond me. And I need to have, for better or worse, credit for those things. I want, I yearn for credit for the idea of that addiction, uh, that uh, heroin, for example, as Carl talks about, is not inherently addictive. I'm just, I'm not Buddhist enough, I'm not detached enough to be able to say, well, look, I put those ideas out there, let them, you know, have their own lives. I want that kind of personal credit. So you're asking the question of which is more motivating to you, and you see both of those things in me, and thank God you're able to deal with both aspects of that with me. Some people find it awkward to see both of those things in one person, but say la vie, that's me. Yeah, the thing is both of those things are in all people. I think that people are just more and less honest about it. I, uh, you know, I wonder, uh, I think I had to my interview with Ethan Nadelman, I think, how well will rad radical honesty go? Uh, and you, in, uh, at the back of the book, I have comments about me from uh, different people. Uh, Archie wanted to take your quote and put it way up front where you said something like, I'm the most intellectually honest person you know. I don't leave any stone unturned. I'm willing when I see something to declare its existence, even when it's the most awkward thing in the world. And I describe that in my memoir, even in my most intimate relationships, where, you know, I, I just won't like, and uh, Peter McDermott's somebody uh, who's been involved in harm reduction for a long time. And he says something kind of brilliant. He says, well, Stan is like a dog with a bone. He'll never let something go, never. Uh, and uh, of course, it's kind of annoying. He talks about me and Gabor Mate, and he says Gabor Mate, among many other people, uh, wish he would, but he won't. And that's why Stanton has continued to be a presence, a prevalent presence, over going, you know, over 40 years, going on a half century. So I'm glad you, I see those as both the yin and the yang, and the positive and the negative. Uh, there, it's it's what's enabled to sustain me, and allow me to put forth ideas and continue to do so in a way that continues to fundamentally both differ from the field and impact the field. So this is why you said, "Well, God bless you for being willing to." I don't know exactly what you said, but you know, deal with who you are, both needing to. Well, let's just say leaving no stone unturned. In, in a lot of ways, I feel like it's easier to deal with a human being who is that way. You're very predictable in that sense. And so so what? So you're going to 
you're going to call a spade a spade. Okay. And sometimes you don't want that. But the sense that I get from you is that socially in society, when you when you have something you want to do, whether it's a career or a relationship or whatever, it's sort of like you've got to play a game. I mean, I don't want to get too abstract, but even things like people doll themselves up to go on a date. And that's a game. It's like, that's not the same way you looked in front of the mirror. And similarly in, in academics or in your career, there's a sort of game you play, a give and take you, you have with people where just kind of like blurb writing for books where you say a thing, maybe the person doesn't even read the book and they say a nice thing because that's a colleague and I'll scratch your back, you'll scratch mine later. And you're, I don't know. To and put another a, thing about that is, when you refer to people in the book, you sort of were thinking, well, do I want to get a blurb from this person farther on? Right, How right. should I write about them in the book? And uh, a human being has to be aware of those things. And you've helped me to be a little bit aware of that within the book. At the same time, you might look at my book and say, well, I burned some bridges. You know, I refer to people who are close to me, who are supportive of me who've said great things about me. And I say, well, this is the limitations of where they come from. Um, you know, I don't want to give away another interview. Uh, Ethan's got a podcast. He's going to interview me. Ethan did everything he could to discourage me from publishing my memoir. It's got some tricky things in there about where I think his work has gone in the field. And yet he assures me that he's going to interview me on his podcast. That's the amazing thing. Like I, um, we've done, we've had this thing together, like work that we've done together before, where you want to give it out straight to the to the person that we're dealing with. And I'm thinking, I personally, I'm thinking, well, we're not going to get another crumb from this person again if we do it this way. But somehow, it must be refreshing. You know where you stand with the relationships with people that you have. I, I don't know if that's right to say, but I mean, if it, if you're going to talk about a famous person that you dealt with before, who's been kind to you but maybe they don't quite understand the full concept that you're trying to lay out you will explain why that person doesn't quite understand the full concept and that breaks the rules you're not you're supposed to be like kind to your fellow countrymen and women while you're writing the book but it's not unkind in your mind it's just here's a person it's a kind person i like this person here's where he went wrong in terms of what i'm writing about and those a lot of those people will still come back say nice things about you do well by you and, and continue to, uh, you know, be in your network. There's something called the addiction theory network. And uh, there was a kind of a dispute on it between some of the members. And I made it public. And every single key person in there got pissed off at me. I mean, I'll just say who got pissed off. Uh, I got kicked off the list, by, including by Nick Heather, who's kind of been my longest term academic supporter. Derek Hine was the co-owner of the list. Uh, Sally Sattel. Carl Hart, who kind of wrote me an email about it, a little bit of a heartrending email. What'd you do this for? Mark Lewis, every single one of them got pissed off at me. And yet every one of them subsequently wrote a blurb for our book, Outgrowing Addiction. <laughs> and I'm a little bit amazed too, that I can do both of those things. And I, maybe people at some level say, well, what are you gonna do? That's Stanton Peel. You and I are two different human beings. We have a different way of approaching life and coming from our upbringings and our outlook. Um, you're a person, you know, uh, you object without being objectionable and you 
it's reflected in your collaborations with clients, with colleagues. It's a mark of your status in the world that you can do that. And then there's me. And ultimately you can judge and you sometimes question yourself, which is going to have a greater impact on the world? Um, mm -hmm. Who's going to be able to change the most views? There's kind of no right answer. Right. Um, and each right. of them has their strong suits and their minor suits. In the book, I'll just take one incident. In October of 2017, there was a group in New York and uh, it was organized at the New School by a man I've known for a really long time, Andrew Tatarski, about how great harm reduction was going. And everybody got up, seven important people got up and they presented data about all the things they were doing. The two main ones being cutting back on painkillers and propagating MA, uh, medications like buprenorphine and methadone that people could use as a substitute for street heroin and are less likely to die. Every one of them got up and every one of them presented a chart showing that in fact, deaths due to drugs had been increasing at the same time that they did those things. And in my memoir, uh, I pick one single person, Denise Payone, and I use her charts. I mean, some of the things that there, and she's a part of the city of New York program. Some of the things you can't, uh, have to be good, like immediate response when somebody has a drug overload. That has to be good. How, right. how can it not help? Right. Naloxone reverses the effects of depressive drugs. That has to be good. And then she throws in, of course, well, we're cutting back people prescribing uh, opioids. And of course, we're propagating everywhere in New York City, methadone and buprenorphine. Oh, by the way, here's the chart of drug deaths in New York in 2017, steeply rising. And in that group, I'm sitting there and I've known Andrew quite a long time. He wouldn't call on me. And what I was going to say is everything everybody's talking about that everybody agrees on is so great, but every single chart shows that drug deaths are increasing. Don't we want to come to grips with that? And the correct answer to that question is no. People don't want to come to grips with that. All groups, you know, we, we put down Trump and his nutty followers, but all groups have the characteristic of seeking allegiance and the beliefs that the people around you have. And that's the right. most important thing, even to the point of disregarding and discounting people's deaths. And as you know, I point out in that same chapter, since 2000, Drug deaths are now at a level of four to five times as great annually as they were at that point. Close to 900,000 people have died drug deaths. And we're going, and you go to conferences where people congratulate themselves on how fabulous the harm reduction movement has been. And I, I say, well, you're missing some fundamental points. Now, let's make the fundamental point right here. So if people get this far in this interview, exactly. the critical thing in how much drugs overwhelm a society are people's feelings of agency mm -hmm. in two regards. If people don't feel that they can affect their lives in general, make their lives better, they're gonna be more susceptible to addiction, bung. That's a generalized agency thing. And the second thing is their feelings of agency towards a drug. And the way the disease theory has gone so far wrong and in some ways, harm reduction is fed into it is to say, well, nobody can control 
being addicted to a narcotic, it, you know, uh, as Nora Volko, the head of the NIDA says, addiction is a disease of free will. To a certain extent, harm reduction is fed into that by saying, well, we don't expect anybody to ever quit heroin or methadone. That's just a lifetime sentence, a metabolic disease. Um, so when you depreciate people's agency in general, which I can't blame the harm reduction movement for, things are going in that direction in our society where we feel we have less control of our lives. Right. And which you and I talk about dealing with when you have a child or a client, giving them more control over lives. And the specific labeling that Nora Volko is guilty of and that harm reduction is fed into of the inability uh, to, to reflect agency in dealing with drugs per se, being able to quit them on your own, being able to control them on your own, uh, being able to leave them behind in a way that's better to do possibly on your own, relying on a medication, um, is feeding into our addiction deaths epidemic. And so, you know, somebody will say to me, uh, even you might say to me, well, Stan, and why, and certainly Ethan and uh, another, you had to be interviewed by uh, a man named Eric White, I think. What? Why do you want to, um, why do you want to, you know, really drive this home so much? Or, you know, what about your offending people? And I say, is my popularity and my offending people, how does that balance against 900,000 deaths? It's nothing. Oh, you know, Stan's a little impolite. Oh, 900,000 people have died. And now you can't attribute every one of those deaths to anything that one group has done. Mm. But my popularity and my pissing people off is nothing compared to this atomic mushroom cloud of drug deaths um, and addiction uh, and, and other mental health consequences that we're witnessing in our time. And, you know, I'll never sacrifice, I would never sacrifice uh, my efforts to do something about that uh, by trying to make myself more popular. And it stuns me that people regularly do that. Say, well, okay, so people are dying. Geez, that's too bad. But at least we're all getting along and agreeing with one another. What you described in that conference where people were patting each other on the back for the efforts that they put forward that you've conceded, of course, they're solid efforts. Of course, the things that, you know, having an overdose reversal drug and trying to make that available, what's the downside in doing that? What you're talking against is, well, there's not a downside to those things. But there could be a downside to pouring your energy into those things while there is something else happening, percolating, that's costing lives and costing people's agency. I think the way that maybe the, the harm reduction group you're talking about sees things is that, well, yeah, we can put up this chart and it can show steep you know, increases in death. And we could put up a chart. We could show that addiction is even uh, you know, more prominent than ever or something. But that's just a force. That's like a thing that's uncontrollable that we're just going to always have to contend with. Meanwhile, I'm, I'm going to wear my badge of honor to show that I, I'm handing out Narcan and you know, Naloxone and, and doing what I can to promote harm reduction in my community. So those are two things that just are always going to coexist, I think, in their minds. And you're saying, no, there's, that's not just a force. There's something 
tangible, there's something real about what's going on that you're trying to open people's eyes to, that you're trying, you're saying, I can see, I mean, it's clear in your mind what's going on and the changes that have to be made. So two things on that, I should let you respond to that and whether you even agree with that or not. But two things that come to mind, one is that you're a theoretician, but not just an armchair person. You're really trying to get out there and figure out what are the problems? And if you can explain the problems in a way that can make sense to people, well, then solutions can happen. Another thing I want to touch on is your famous question, so now what? And I don't think that anyone can accuse you of not actually taking steps in your life to actually fight against either nonsense or combat um, fatalities and do something for people who are facing addiction and who want help with it. So maybe you could respond to uh, both of those things. Well, I want to make clear that we would never be opposed to Narcan. Narcan and Naloxon are non-ideological. You find right. somebody in the throes of a death throes and you inject them and it reverses that. Of course. That's, that's just like any human being would do that. Altrexone mm -hmm. is something different and along with buprenorphine and methadone which claims to be a fundamental way of dealing with addiction by changing how you feel about the substance or substituting for it in a way that replay, uh, that eliminates and replaces the addiction. Did I say naltrexone? I didn't mean to if I did. No, you didn't. Oh, okay, okay. I, I just want to make clear that we, you know, Narcan and Naloxon, they're not any, they're like, you know, if somebody's bleeding in the street, you, right. you pick them up and put a tourniquet on them. Right. The things that have a, have a fundamental impact on our concept of addiction and our use of drugs and our personal relationship to drugs, that's the danger zone. And one example I use of that still stuns me, you know, uh, Johan Hari is a man who's had a popular bestseller. Uh, what was the title of his bestseller, Against the Disease Theory of Addiction? What was his first? Yep. Uh, Chasing the Scream. And it's monumental, the impact, you know, the number of views he gets and the readership. He's, he's a stunning talent. And then I got an email from an attorney representing a woman who had been put in jail. It's complex. Um, and there, it wasn't for her drug use. She was in for burger, for stealing. And they said, as a part of that, you have to go and she was on Suboxone and go to a 12-step program. She violated that by taking fentanyl, which was her drug of choice, and they put her in jail. And so the attorney hired as her main expert, Sarah Wakeman, who said, number one, addiction is a relapsing, a recurring chronic brain disease. And Johan contacted me to write a brief in support of that. And I'm just sitting there stunned. How is that possible that somebody who just wrote a bestseller saying addiction is not a disease thinks that this is the right thing to do? Right. And my best answer to that in the book is, well, he would say, well, look, we're helping this one person. And it's sort of like at one point in the world telling people homosexuality was a disease it was certainly better than putting anybody in jail. And it's some kind of analogy as I was thinking about that. And so I could never do that. I could never support something which goes directly opposed to my point of view. And then the attorney contacted me. That, that attorney is really pissed off at me. 
and said, well, the Drug Policy Alliance, this is after Ethan left, is writing a brief in support of us. And then I immediately started pounding the pavement and saying that can't be possible, that DPA is supporting a disease model. And I myself wrote a brief, that's not my strong suit. I have a law degree, but that's not my strong suit saying, I'm opposed to um, this woman being in jail, but not on the basis that she has a disease. Right. And there was a major brief written led by Sally Sattel, which said, yes, it's good for her to be in jail because that's one negative that makes people less likely to continue using drugs. Let's go with it. And that was put in. And eventually, uh, DPA claimed through the person of Jules Netherland, we're never going to write that brief. We're going to write a brief that says we're against being jailed, but not based on the disease theory. They never submitted a brief. They, I was the only person that submitted a brief in the world saying, no, she shouldn't be in jail, for God's sake, no matter what her drug use is based on. Um, but no, it's not a disease. It fell on me as the one human being. DPA never submitted a brief. And so that, that's an example. At, and to this day, Ethan won't acknowledge that. Ethan will, Ethan will say, well, we were going to put in a brief. Uh, he wasn't in charge of DPA at that point. Right. Um, so it doesn't fall at his feet. Um, and I don't know if you're going to admire me, and I, I don't know that anybody in particular admires me for doing that. I, how was it, as I asked in my memoir, that I'm the only human being in the world, the only institution, and I'm as far from an institution as you get, who made that argument, no jail, no disease. And Johan became completely incensed with me. And the attorney said, you, were, you created a firestorm that prevented DPA from you know, supporting us, damn you. And DPA says, no, we were never going to do that. And Ethan says, well, we were never going to do that. So I'm totally out on the cold. And what can I say? I feel I did the most independent, noble thing possible. And when you say, and then if anybody were to look at that and say, well, how did one guy by himself in his 70s with no support, I mean, I had to do the brief myself. You know, it's complicated to submit a brief to a, a, a court. Um, how did I get that job? And that's my unacknowledged glory as I did that. And mainly I ended up pissing off a whole array of different people. So this is a good segue because I'm, I'm, it's one of the most interesting parts of the memoir. I think that you'd split it into sections and one section feeds on another and they sort of shoot back and forth and become interesting the lens of you in your life and your career and how you make a living your family life is just as interesting to me as any of the conceptual sort of or, or ideas work that you're doing in there so how did you manage to make a living given the landscape you just described i mean you're there is no 90 percent in agreement with you kind of a all right you got to make a friend because 90 percent agreement it's like let's get to the down to the nitty gritty and let's figure out ground truth. And if people aren't really wanting to go with you on that ride, then okay. But you're going to, you'll be there if, even if it's on your own, your book is called a lonely quest to change how people see addiction. 
So how did you fully independently and, and not letting, let's say, some percentage of disagreement get by? Well, I've never had a job in the addiction field. I've never, and I've never had a psychology job. I had one academic appointment at teaching organizational behavior at the Harvard Business School. And so the middle section of the book is, well, how, when you're somebody who kind of has a position and, you know, a personal approach that kind of turns everybody off, you then have this task. I had three children. How are you going to exactly live in a nice, have a reasonable lifestyle, send your kids to college? I had a very supportive wife who I'm now divorced from. And she was going to insist that we send all of these kids to university, some of which were quite expensive. Um, and how are you going to do that exactly? And that's, in a way, kind of the most mythical thing about me that I devote some time to in a book. And it might puzzle people, wait, is this a book about addiction? Because the way I did that was to get involved, sometimes with addiction-related things, but otherwise using other of my skills. I mean, I do have a PhD and a law degree in social psychology from the University of Michigan. And going through school is always iffy for me because I'm always pissing people off. And how did I get to use my skills as a way and sell them to support my family? And those stories are to me, and I interact with quite famous people doing that. For example, Lewis Harris, the biggest survey person I worked for his group. And we did something called Healthcare Outlook, where we sold away, we did surveys looking at the state of healthcare. And we went around on lectures, and I lectured about them with a brilliant analytic man uh, named Morris, Ian Morrison, Scottish guy. And after a year, I got fired because Lou Harris got pissed off at me. Then I went to a place called Mathematica, where I picked up the American Association of Retired Persons research arm. Somehow I started doing survey research for them on healthcare, which I sort of had learned about at Lou Harris. And I became their kind of main healthcare consultant. And eventually Mathematica got sick and tired of me. Uh, you know, the guy there is a very nice man named George Kirkanyo and he fired me. And then I sort of got AARP and Prudential to use me as their main consultant, which is impossible. I mean, because for example, they would send somebody around to inspect your site. And I said, I don't have a site. I just have this little back room in my house in Morristown. And they sort of said, well, maybe we can work with that. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> basically the guy said, well, he's useful to us. And I describe how after I did each survey, the surveys were pro forma. You had to talk about the members and people who uh, had different kinds of insurance. At the end of every survey, I would write a list of 10 things that Prudential, who was paying for it, could do with my information to sell more insurance. And uh, the guy who was in charge of Prudential said, you know, Stanton, you're not perfectly aware of uh, health insurance. So every year you give us a list of 10 things and half of them are like illegal. <laughs> However... Of the other half, we thought of like maybe two of them. And then every year you tell us three things and we said, huh, we never thought of that. And, you know, we pay you a fair amount of money, but that amount of money is nothing compared to if a couple of these ideas we can take and market, you know, 
AARP has 50 million members, you know, God bless you. And then I went on to talk about some strange interactions I've had in life. I became a consultant on the Exxon Valdez. I'm a, let me jump to the end and say I'm a thousand percent in favor of Exxon paying for every bit of damage that occurred and for fixing the whole damn Bay of Alaska. Who else should pay for it? However, a part of the case against them was that the captain of the boat of the Valdez had been in alcoholism treatment and uh, he had been drinking and therefore that explained why the boat went aground. And I said, it doesn't explain anything. He wasn't intoxicated that night. That happens all of the time. And I did a whole sub with Archie, a whole subset of writings for legal submissions. His name was Hazelwood and he became a laughing stock. But his, the explanation that, well, it was an alcoholic, you know, David Letterman said, oh, the reason he crashed into the iceberg was because he needed ice cubes for his drink. I mean, they decimated the man. And I got paid a lot of money to do that. And they couldn't let me actually go to the trial because I didn't care if Exxon, I wanted Exxon to pay a ton of dough. But on the other hand, that explanation about Hazelwood made no sense at all. And, and once again, the billions of dollars that were involved in that escapade, billions of which they eventually paid, whatever they paid me was nothing. Right. There's not any amount of money I, an Archie could charge that they would care about. And so those are examples both in mainstream insurance sales, where I have certain skill, analytic skills, and know how to design surveys. And then in terms of theoretical things, where some giant payer has some use for my specific brand, are ways that I've made it through life. And... You know, it's, to me, it's an amazing journey. I enjoyed it. And it's kind of like, how did you do that exactly? And if I couldn't have done that, I couldn't have been me. You know, my, my wife would have said at some point, you know, you got to send these kids to, you know, one of my, my son went to Penn. You know, that costs a few bucks. You got to do that. And that was her bottom line. To her everlasting credit, and she was doesn't necessarily want any credit for my life. <laughs> um, Prudential had a large Prudential's largest insurance sale purveyor in the United States. At some point, Prudential per se was aware of me, not just the part that dealt with AARP. And the head of their whole research division said, Would you please? And they happened to be not far from my home in Morristown, New Jersey would you be in charge of our survey division? And uh, the guy who did that, I think he had both a PhD and a public health degree. He said, you don't have to come in every day. When you come in, you don't have to wear a suit, but you are gonna have to give up your other activities. And I just said, no. And to my wife's everlasting credit, she didn't blink an eye when I came home. I said, well, Prudential, you know, asked me to be head of their survey division. You can only imagine what that would pay. I don't know. I'm making it up. A quarter of a million dollars? I don't know. And my wife didn't blink an eye. She said, okay, just keep going along in your way of like seeking out, making a living and surviving in the world that you've been doing as anxiety producing as that is. 
you know, sort of like, oh, my husband's a test pilot for, you know, rocket ships. Um, it, it, I sort of view it that way. But uh, her quote was, uh, I feel like I'm married to a riverboat gambler. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you've you've managed to, obviously you have uh, chops to be able to do anything analytical or um, theoretical. You've also done, and, and so, and you're a man of your convictions. And so in some ways you're predictable to an extent, even if the predictability lays within the, as you said, you know, you give 10 ideas, half of them are illegal. We can never do them. Two of them we already know. Three of them are pure gold. That you predictably offer that, you know, to any given, what, what would you say, client. I also know two different sides of you. They're not two different sides of you. They're two parts of that make you who you are. So you have another skill and it's a clinical skill. Um, I don't know if you're aware that you have good clinical skills or not. I, I would assume that you do know. But uh, I think maybe you sell yourself short sometimes. I've seen, I've experienced, been on the other end of what it could sound like being a client. I wasn't your client, but you know, you've talked me through some things. You have this ability to engage in a Socratic kind of dialogue that's completely non-judgmental. And so you, you wouldn't say to that person, like you would say to many of your colleagues, open your damn eyes, you know, or whatever. You'd try to help them make sense of the world as they're seeing it right now and maybe expanding their, their horizons. So What's the switch that's flipped when you're dealing with that kind of a person? And I was motivated in some ways. I was motivational interviewing before Bill Miller came up with motivational interviewing. And I talk mm -hmm. about my whole relationship with Bill Miller. And motivational uh, interviewing for people who don't know that is sort of like a Socratic dialogue, a non-judgmental right. way of. And it's like you use the term collaborative. I never impose my views on clients. And going back with Ethan, I met Ethan. At Princeton, when I worked for Mathematica, he was going through a divorce. And Ethan would say to people, well, Stanton never told me what to do. He only ever asked me questions, but that really was useful to me. And that was sort of one of the bases of Ethan being able to defend me. And the connection that we made was I was able to do that. I'll give some other examples of that. Archie and I went to, uh, you know, presented together in a conference in Nova Scotia. And I have an ability to make use of a group as a sounding board where I just throw out ideas and ask questions. And to some extent, I learned that at the Harvard Business School. The Harvard Business School, where the only academic position I ever had, you question people as a way of emerging into some kind of consensual understanding of a situation. Mm -hmm. And after, Archie's a guy who knows me a long time. And we worked with the group and Archie made some presentations of information in that succinct, unassuming, brilliant way of his. And I would interact with the group by saying, well, what did you think of that? Does that work in with your way of doing things? And uh, give me an example of that. And afterwards, you know, Archie's a guy, he doesn't hang around necessarily praising me. Afterwards, he said, you have a gift. Uh, that might have been the only time Archie said that to me. I have a way of relaxed interaction with the group. And it's a, 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 a Socratic or a motivational interviewing version of how we work with clients at the Life Process Program, how I work with Ethan. And I do have a skill at that. 
I have an ability to stand up in front of a group of people and not flinch, not be anxious if people will start disagreeing with me and objecting to me, uh, being patient, uh, letting the process go through. I can do that. And so I do have a variety of clinical skills. I, 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 you, have a, you have an ability to empathize with people and to be non-judgmental and to wish them well. It's, it's remarkable. I don't have all of those abilities, but I have some of them that work pretty well with some clients and can be really utilized in a larger group sometimes in a, I think, somewhat unique way. And I, I am able to use and live off of those kinds of group and clinical skills. Would you say there's a relationship between your sort of, let's call it radical honesty um, and your ability to stand in front of a crowd without flinching? Yes. I mean, um, there was a, I, went, I was in, in front of a group in Liverpool and afterwards a guy came up to me and said, and I'm still friendly with him, you're the bravest person I know because I would just put myself up, for example, I said, why did the Surgeon General's report say that smoking was not addictive? It actually went to, the Surgeon General's report in 1964 said smoking caused cancer. And it said specifically smoking wasn't addictive because addiction sort of meant lurking around in a alley somewhere storing drugs. And everybody in the audience says, because the, uh, the researchers were all in the throes of the tobacco companies. And I said, does that really make sense to you? A report just declared smoking causes cancer. That's not gonna be good for the industry. Right. You know, immediately half of people quit smoking when they said, when an official document said it causes cancer and eventually smoking got cut back to about 25% of all smokers continued to smoke. I said, does it really make sense to you to say that's why they declared that smoking wasn't addictive because they were trying to benefit the tobacco companies. You're such a bunch of hippie liberals. What you don't understand, what you don't have the ability to understand is that the very meaning of addiction was changing in front of our eyes. And so people are sort of sitting there and some people are objecting to me and getting pissed off at me. And some people are sort of scratching their heads. And afterwards, a guy came up to me and said, you know, you're the bravest person I've ever met. You'll get in front of an audience and sort of light yourself on fire and let them attack you at the same time that you're sort of making them think and opening the eyes of at least a quarter of the people. And um, I can do that. And, you know, my memoir says some pretty uncomplimentary things about myself. I mean, you can read my memoir and say, what an a-hole. Um, for better or worse, whatever my insecurities are, I'm prepared to strip down and just put them out there and take it or leave it. So you call it your scientific, a scientific life on the edge. And I think that some people would scoff at the idea that addiction science, social psychology, so forth, is a science. What is science? Uh, let me actually add to that. One qualifier is that science needs to be falsifiable. And there's, a, there's a broader argument that people might have with you calling what you're doing science and, and a retort that I know you have. 
but science needs to be falsifiable. So could someone falsify your addiction conceptualization? And what would that look like? Like in Freud's work, he sort of thrives on the unfalsifiability of psychoanalysis, right? But yours, you would say, could be tested logically and empirically, practically in life. So can you expand on that? Well, I mean, throughout the book, I say, here's what I said was happening with addiction and look what happened. Right in the first chapter in the introduction, I say, uh, a woman called me up from um, New York Times and said, um, isn't it great in Delray Beach that people never leave their therapeutic community after they graduate from treatment, they hang out there and stay there in a protected environment. And I'm the only person quoted in the article that says, how is that healthy? And then 10 years later, exactly, the New York Times published an article saying it was a centerpiece of a drug deaths, constant overdoses, constant hospitalizations, because people never left that community. And so, um, the, forgive me for saying this, I don't know that I say this in the book. Einstein's contribution to science, he never did any experiments himself. He said, how do we explain these things that are happening? And they finally, in 1919, uh, according to Einstein's theory, uh, if you could measure sunlight going by the sun or light coming from outer space, it would be bent by the gravitational pull of sun because energy, uh, pure energy has a mass component. And people said, well, that's impossible. That makes no sense in terms of our concepts. And then they found that the sun bent sunlight as gravitationally went around it. And then everybody was, huh, you know, maybe this whole concept, this whole different concept of way of thinking about things is critical. And so my gift and my contribution and my proof in life is that everything that I predicted, natural recovery, um, environmental causes of addiction and environmental treatments of addiction, harm reduction, that is people can become more or less uh, subject to the negative consequences of uh, an addiction. Um, every aspect of addiction that we now are, con the normalization of drug use, the ability to bring that into normal purview, everything that's now being discussed were issues that we raised in love and addiction. Our publisher made us put them in the appendix because she said, we're trying to write a bestseller here for God's sake. You know, what the hell is all this? They're all there. Every issue, as I point out, that is now being debated feverishly is something that I talked about and predicted the direction of. It's funny that you should mention that science thing. And that's a, a crucial element of science is a conceptual framework that makes sense of the reality around us and it allows us to go forward in a positive direction. Mm. That's my scientific uh, contribution. And I have to confess, I had a British publisher, academic publisher, they were the one who wanted me to put that in the title. Maybe, you know, it was a little iffy, uh, but let me tell you one last story. By the way, this is such a great interview, Zach. Nobody could have interviewed me more sensitively and in a way that explicates my point of view and my contributions than you. Thank you. Um, I have a cousin who proofread my book. And he said, we have to send this book out to all of our, the other cousins. 
And I said, Rich, do you really think that's going to be 100% a good idea? And one of my other cousins, who I grew up with, his mother and my mother were sisters, um, is a highly influential uh, medical researcher. And he hit the ceiling with a, and a scientific uh, uh, life on the edge. He just went crazy saying, this isn't science. This isn't brain theory. You don't know anything about the reward mechanisms in the brain. And so, you know, it had tremendous reverb, negative reverberations throughout my whole family. Because my one cousin suggested we do this and my other cousin just hit the ceiling because it violated everything he did as a medical researcher. And so, you know, I, ironically, I'm still creating tidal waves and uh, massive explosions like shooting stars, even at this point in my life where I'm just trying to summarize what the hell's going on. So last question, I asked my grandfather one time while he was still alive, it's my father's father, uh, I was a lot younger and he was talking about retiring and no one in our family thought he'd ever retire. And I said, are you happy with what you've done in life or something like that? And he said, well, you know, I'm still alive. So I have to ask you, what's next? Well, um, I talked to you earlier about having a purpose is a life-sustaining thing. You know, I'm 75. I'm single. Uh, you know an older friend I have who's now 92, now lives in assisted care. So I begun to think about what's the future contain. And I had artificially designated the age of 75 as a cutoff point. I published my memoir when I was 75. And, you, and I almost might have thought, well, that's the end, but it's not the end. Uh, here I am. I'm still fighting to get the ideas about the book out. I'm still talking about my conflicts with Ethan Nadelman, the fact that he's going to interview me. I'm still, as you know, talking about how am I going to market these ideas? How am I going to get Jacob to push them forward? You know, you can't just call it end to your life and say, well, okay, we're done. Then what? I can't do that by my nature and I can't do it practically, it's not possible. And so I've just now begun to think about the last whatever, 50, I've started to really exercise intensely. By the way, you impacted me on that. You said, mm. well, one of a coach's D has got me exercising and going to the gym at five in the morning. And just hearing you say that made me think, huh, I should start doing that. And I've begun doing that riding my bike to that cafe that you and I and Sean ate at, and then going over to a part of the Y, not the part where I met the mayor, which is a whole other story. <laughs> yeah. But uh, there's a whole other part of the Y in a, in a, in a giant building. Um, and that's where I've been going. And I start doing these calculations. They have these calculators, and it's starting to say that I'm going to live to be over 90, which I wouldn't have thought. My parents, you know, both died around 80-ish. And so now I've had to reconceptualize how I'm going to live, how I'm going to survive, how I'm going to work for this last conceivably 15-year period of my life. This past weekend, I had a discussion with Archie about how we're each going to do that. You know, I'm, I'm not giving up the fight now. And right now, the question is, well, how am I going to make sure that people acknowledge my memoir 
And this interview with you is one example of it. Bless your heart. And uh, I'm going to go forward, continuing to give my all to getting my ideas out, pushing this memoir and going beyond that. So the memoir is called A Scientific Life on the Edge, My Lonely Quest to Change How We See Addiction. I've been talking with Dr. Stanton Peel, and Stanton can't tell you how much it means to me to do this interview with you and know that your memoir is seen light at the end and that we get to kind of propagate it wherever we can. So thank you. And, uh, you know, thank God that I've come to know you and work with you. There couldn't have been a better interview, and uh, you just put it along many of your other accolades and accomplishments, this little piece of work you've done today. I'll put things, I'll put links in the show notes for how people can sort of find you, your work, and your and my work. Um, anything specific you want to plug, other than I'll link people to the book, I'll link people to the Life Process Program. Uh, what else? Well, you know, you and I, I mean, the one area of my work that I'm going to start trying to push a little bit more uh, this week, I'm going to, you know, um, the woman who has written about um, range-free children and has gotten a lot of flack is now writing for Reason Magazine. Oh. And I want to point out, uh, she talks about the benefits for children. We, you and I, and I for many years have been specifically saying, well, how do you raise a non-addicted child? And the single thing you can most allow a person to do in the world is to be able to face the world bravely and confidently and feeling your own agency. And there's a tremendous direct link between range-free children and the concept of raising a non-addicted child. And nobody's sort of, I've made that connection and you and I have made that connection, but it hasn't been plugged in to the people who press uh, push for range free children. And so uh, I wanna, I'm gonna try and emphasize that connection hmm. as one critical element in everything that we're doing. Excellent. Stanton, thank you again. Au revoir. <laughs>